0: That was beautiful, and so appreciate uh, the efforts of the worship team week after week. Today, I actually thought as I was as we were singing, I was thinking, you know, it's really a possibility. And then I thought, nah. Sometimes there are so many times I just wish we could sing after the sermon because you can't imagine how. Much truth that is in the message is expressed in the songs and it reinforces the truth of the word. I appreciate so much uh, the work that David does every week on that and occasionally, like the last two weeks, it's been Andrea and Sarah have um, put the songs together together and they do so looking at the text. I'm not that terribly involved in that process. Occasionally I'll say, hey, let's, I want a particular song here. And it's usually something like, as the deer. When I say, pass it on, he says, no, we're not doing that. And, you know, so, I mean, <laughs> and I get that. I mean, I need to, you know, be checked like that. So, um, <clears throat> But just know that there's so much more that goes on as these guys lead us into worship. And... The, the practice and, and the, the the care that they give to doing as it is stated in the Old Testament when the uh, different Levites were chosen or the different ones to sing and lead in worship, uh, only the best were allowed. So this is the cream of the crop of Harnett County. It's up here every Sunday morning. So <clears throat> thank you, worship team, for all that you do going through the gospel of Mark, we've hit a place where there are going to be some times where there's just a lot of truth, and, and it's not a lot of application, and that really bugs some people. I've talked in the past about <clears throat> trying to do three things on Sunday morning when we preach. One explain what the text means. You know, that means we'll bring in sometimes original languages, context, uh, the culture of the day, the grammar, the way certain things are structured. There's a lot to just understanding what a particular passage means. You can't, most of, a lot of you use devotionals. And uh, Allison uses some devotionals by people that I really trust. And yesterday I was saying. She says, I usually go back and then I read the verse and, and I read the context. And I said, does it always stick with the context? She said, well, you know, usually they're pulling out a particular thought. It's difficult to, to be a, a verse here and a verse there kind of Christian. I mean, it's awesome. It's easy. But you're not always getting the full truth. So when we're preaching on Sunday morning, trying to explain what surrounds the passage. Think about how much of your theology is built around a verse here or a verse there. Not saying that that's not legit. It is. But as long as you understand a bigger picture of Scripture. So, one, we're always trying to give the meaning of what's being said. Two, <clears throat> um, we're trying to make application. Because God's Word is given For us to bring life to us through Jesus. And if Jesus is in us, we ought to be different people. Now, thank God the gospel extends to us well beyond the days that we're saved. And 1 John 1 indicates that when you sin, confess your sin and then move on. We're going to sin until the day we stand before Jesus. But He is conforming us to the image of Christ. We should be becoming different people. And so there's application. This is how God wants me to apply this text to my life. <clears throat> and sometimes it's going to be a little different for you than it is for me. And the word is like that. It's not that the, verse, that the word means something different to you than what it means to me. God's word means what it means. But there are lots of different ways the Holy Spirit might apply that same truth to our lives. That's why you look at one verse today and you say, oh, this is what I need to focus on. You look at it five years from now and you say, oh, whoa, i got to focus on this. And and they're both there. It's just that we see more and more as we go. Then the third thing is, is to provide a grid that helps you to interpret Scripture. And it's so important in the Gospels because if you just... Take what Jesus says apart from the Old Testament, apart from the explanation of what Jesus was teaching that's found in the letters of the New Testament, you could get in trouble. Um, And so, there are times, especially going through the gospel, that it's more teaching than it is application. Now, this week is a lot of teaching. Next week is a lot of application. David's going to be preaching from the great commandment next week about what does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But here's the setup for that. And, and and the title of today's message is Drawing the Lines Clearly. Jesus is putting a distinction between Him and the religious leaders of the day. Does it trouble you, speaking of our day, does it trouble you that so many of the movies that you enjoy, the stories that you enjoy have so little difficulty getting you involved, emotionally involved in righting the wrongs that are presented in that story to the point that you just want people to die painfully. Slowly enough that they recognize justice is being served. I mean, who in this house is not glad that Jack Bauer's back on the scene? Who? Who? Are we not glad? And Jack lives almost exclusively beyond the lines of what we would consider acceptable behavior and activity. But we recognize, you know, we need people like that. Like Jack Bauer. Look, you you could make a case that such sympathy, sympathy for rights, for wrongs being righted, is a very powerful argument for the existence of God. I mean, in fact, N.T. Wright would say that Our desire for justice, our heartfelt desire for justice, is one of, if not the chief evidence and argument for the existence of God. Be it the fallen humans that we are, our desire for justice is especially heightened when we sense that we have been done wrong. I want justice. Not so much when we have wronged others, whether intentionally or inadvertently. Well, I didn't mean to. Come on. I I know that some of you don't read fiction. You you watch a lot of movies or TV, and and, and some of you read a whole lot, but you don't read fiction. I just got to tell you, and this is, I, I know it's a personal opinion, I could make a case for it, don't have time now, I think that's a big mistake. You ought to read fiction. One, one of the great things about reading a story, it takes a lot longer to read than it does to, to watch a show or to watch a movie, even if it is spread out over 24 episodes, or 12 as the case is in this go-round. Um. It is that it you slowly you put yourself into someone else's mind you're thinking and feeling right along with with the characters in the story and 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 sometimes when you you're reading along or somebody's telling a story or especially this is true when you're watching a movie or something you know he's like no don't do that don't do that please don't you're just into it all the way into it you often will see your own preferences and actions in a person's uh, portrayal, character's uh, portrayal in the story. And, and sometimes, actually, it's kind of like you get to take an objective view of the subjective and a subjective view of the objective. Don't ask me what that means. I have no idea what that means. But look, you, you get to get outside of yourself and you look at someone And you see things about yourself that you wouldn't ordinarily see. I mean, people have been trying to point it out for a while. But when you're quiet and you're alone, it's like, oh, wow, that's the way I am sometimes. Yeah, that's what I'd be thinking. I can see that. And sometimes you just are better able to consider change that is needed in your own life. When you're confronted with reality about yourself that's embedded in a richly woven plot or a character in a story. You kind of see yourself there. And sometimes, you know, people say, well this is my philosophy and they point to a fictional character. And people go, Pfft. Sometimes l- legit. How would you feel though, if someone told a story or a parable or an allegory that drew you in, especially where you said, yeah, 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 publicly, and then they, at the very end, exposed you for the fraud and the hypocrite you are, exposed the very core of your being to the world. especially if this is a magnificent story and it painted you as the villain and your opponent as the hero. How would you feel? Probably not too happy. In Jesus' day, there were no movies. Very few people had, were privileged to own books, particularly works of fiction. But stories were told in public settings and there was much debate. Listen, this was, it was like the movies of our day. When there's a masterful storyteller in town, everybody went to hear it. Now for Jesus, (coughs) excuse me, they went to be fed and be healed and all of these things. But they were mesmerized by his stories. And when a master storyteller was working his magic and he invited participation from the audience, they would get emotionally Involved, And they were just as much into those moments as you will be this week watching a movie, watching a television show, reading a book. They were into it. So, our text takes us to just such a moment. We're going to begin in Mark chapter 12, verse 1. And although the message is going to include all the material... Through verse 27. And it's three separate pericopes. is a fancy word for units of thought. It's like a complete unit of thought. Three different stories. Three different sections. And, and it's really hard. I'm going to do my best to segue from one to the other. But these feel unrelated. It's all related though. It all ties in. And man does it come with a powerful punch. Next Sunday. So. Mark 12 we're going to read verses 1 through 12 would you please stand as is our custom for the reading of God's word and please note that I'm reading from the English standard version and he began to speak to them in parables a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants, and went into another country when the season came. He sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard and they took him and beat him, and sent him away empty handed and He stuck to them uh, sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully and he sent another him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent them to, sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him but feared the people, for they perceived he had told this parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let's pray. Father, um, there is much for us to know so that we might understand not only your word, but your desire for us, your plan for us. May we Come with open hearts to the word, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Uh, when Jesus began telling his story, no doubt uh, the, 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 the religious leaders were thinking of ways that they could embarrass him, they could trap him, they could trick him. We're going to see that in just a moment. But certainly all fell silent in spite of themselves in spite of desperately wanting to make Jesus look foolish, they were drawn into the story. Because again, it's like, you know, I'm not going to watch that movie, and then you start watching and it's like, oh, oh, this is really good. They would know that Jesus, being a teacher, referred to Isaiah 5, where God is presented as a loving owner and caretaker of a choice vineyard. Everyone knew that God... From Isaiah five was expressing his tender care for the nation of Israel, but but the story was rooted in, in in contemporary life as well because it was quite common for someone to buy a vineyard, live somewhere else, and he would have tenants who would take care of the land, and the tenants might get somewhere around fifty percent of the of 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 the crops for themselves, but then the owner would get the other fifty percent with really doing quite little. And sell it and make a profit for himself. So these estates oftentimes were, were graced with beautiful homes and, and well-tended gardens. But the primary focus, of course, was to produce fruit. The purpose was to produce fruit. And the tenants would tend those crops for the for the owner. As expected in the story... The owner sends a servant to collect the fruit or to collect the profits from the fruit. He was due it. It was time to collect. And so defying any rational explanation, they beat the servant. <clears throat> then as the story goes on, they, they, they mistreat <coughs> these servants who were coming representing the owner horribly beat them about the head and they kill some of them. <clears throat> now we understand right off the bat that Jesus is talking about the religious leaders of the day who um, had hijacked the system of God, that, or the system that God had put in place to point people to Jesus. When Jesus would come, the people should have been ready, should have known, but the leaders were saying, no, actually, look at me. Look at me, the ruler of this temple, the one who determines what you can and you cannot go- do. How dare you do these things without my approval, our approval? We understand that Jesus was saying this against the leaders of the, uh, of the Jewish people. But they wouldn't have understood it. Nobody, it would have been shocking to think that that's what Jesus was saying. In almost everybody's mind, Jesus was talking about those wicked, oppressive Romans. And so, these leaders were saying, yeah, yeah, that's right. Finally, in the story, the owner sent his son. And this is one of those, you know, the record goes, and they're like, wait a minute. We know that God is the owner, the servants are the people of Israel, Uh, And and the tenants are the Romans. They're the usurpers. They don't even belong here. And they're beating the servants of the owner. God doesn't have a son. Well, wait a minute. Maybe He's talking about the nation of Israel. So they're immediately drawn right back into it. But God does have a son. And the wicked servants killed Him as well. After all the patience and the long-suffering of the owner... Time after time sending ones to them saying, repent and do the right thing and all will be forgiven. They did the unthinkable. They killed the son. So the leaders were a big time back into the story. When Jesus asked, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? The way Mark tells the story, it it seems as though Jesus Well, he records Jesus has given the answer, but Matthew gives us a fuller accounting. And it's actually the leaders who respond to Jesus. Does this remind you of another parable in Scripture? Like one in the Old Testament when King David had committed adultery and had the woman with whom he had sinned killed so that when she delivered a child nine months later, it wouldn't look like, you know, it was a lot different back then. You could be married. and In fact, the king, man, he could say, hey, you're mine, you're mine. You can come anytime, as long as they were single. I mean, he was God's king, so God's representative. So he just couldn't do anything that he wanted to, but he did. So Nathan, the prophet, comes to David. You remember the story brilliant. There was a man who had limbs, who had lambs and land, and he just had everything. He was rich. He had so many flocks of sheep. But there was this one man who had just one little lamb, and he loved it, just like some of you, against my sensibility. Cuddle your little dog or your little cat, you know. At night, this man would do that with his lamb. He would sleep with his lamb, you know. And and so then Nathan said, But, you know, this rich man had guests, and instead of taking one lamb from his own flock, he went and snatched this poor man's one possession, his one lamb, and he killed him. David didn't ask for the question. He just said, as surely as the Lord lives, bring him right here. And Nathan said, he's going to die. Nathan said, you are the man. Didn't I give you, God said, all of this? And you go and take another man's wife and have him killed. You know, the difference is a huge difference. I'll talk about it in a minute between David and these leaders. Well, this is exactly what has happened. But Jesus has set them up. He's told the story. And he said, what will they do? And Matthew says it this way. This is what the leader said. He will put those miserable wretches to a miserable death. And let out the vineyards to others who will give him the fruit in their seasons. Just imagine what they have just said. They have really spoken their own condemnation. These who have killed the Son of God will be put to a miserable death. Those miserable wretches. And God will give what is theirs to another. What is their privilege. Will be given to another. So instead of saying, You are the man, Jesus chided them for not knowing the scriptures. We're going to hear this again in Mark 12. Remember, these new men, these men knew more about the Old Testament than anybody alive. Nobody knew the the scriptures as well as these guys did. And Jesus said, You don't know anything, do you? And when he quoted Psalm 118, 22 to 23, they knew, they knew that Jesus was not speaking about the Romans, but rather he was speaking about them. Jesus was and Jesus is the cornerstone. Think about that next time we sing that song. He is the cornerstone. Already in Jesus' day, Mark or excuse me, Psalm 118 was considered a reference to the Messiah. Jesus was and is a stumbling block. People can't, can't get past Jesus. Look, most, there are very few people that care about, if you believe in God, they believe in God. But when you say Jesus is the only way, that's where people say, what? How dare you? Who do you think you are? It's not who I think I am. It's who Jesus claimed to be, and I believe Him. Jesus was and is a stumbling block. Either you believe and follow Him, or you will be crushed by that rock. Does that feel offensive to you? It is, but it's offensive in the the kind of way that if, you know, someone believes that he or she can fly and they're about to step off the top of a 35 story building and you say uh gravity is going to work against you here that's offensive if you believe that Jesus is the only way you better tell people this is what he said And this is what he expects. Now look, these these are the most religious people of the day, the finest people you'll ever want to know. And Jesus has condemned them. He pronounced judgment on the leaders as a prophet. He told the people that their hope of a relationship with God is not in the law. In fact, it's in me. Remember, they already hated him. But after he said that, they said, oh, you know what? That's, I think you're right about that. Not hardly. See, Jesus was not saying that there was anything wrong with the law. There's something wrong with us. We're incapable of keeping the law. And when we put our hope in the law, there's nothing waiting us but condemnation. Nothing. There is no room for boasting, Paul says in Romans 3. In the flesh, None. And you have to recognize that and accept who God says that you are apart from Him before you can receive the good news that Jesus died for us. So if you've not thought about it before, it's, it, it's quite a mouthful to swallow. But the false teaching was, look, you need to be as good as you can be because you're going to stand before God one day. That, that was the false teaching. You need to be as good as you can be because God's going to judge you one day. And you don't want to, oh, people do things and they say, oh, I wouldn't want to stand before the Lord having done that. Oh, I wouldn't. Well, look, if we're guilty of one sin, we're guilty of all there is a penalty for our failure, our sin, and it's eternal separation from God. And, but because God loved us, He made a way that would qualify us for heaven. He sent His Son to die in our place as punishment for taking our punishment for sin. It's quite interesting, is it not, that all the religious people teamed with the oppressive pagan rulers from Rome... To accomplish God's plan. They thought they were putting an end to this mess and getting on with the business of God. And they were accomplishing God's plan. We're going to put an end to this nonsense. Well, actually, you're fulfilling God's will. And either you will be attached to the cornerstone, the main anchoring stone of of God's new temple. Or you will be crushed by this rock. That was Jesus' very direct message, and when someone says, why can't you share love like Jesus did? You might respond, I agree that Jesus was all about love for those who believe, but He was quite direct about the consequences for those who sought to get to God on their own terms. You see somebody going down a bad road with alcohol, or with drugs, and criminal activity, and you, 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 you say, well, you know, I, I, I should have said something, but I just didn't, I didn't want to be judgmental. I didn't want, no, be judgmental, if that's what people want to perceive. That's okay. You got to step in between, and all we're doing when we share the gospel, and we say there are grave consequences, is we're trying to get in front of somebody who's wanting to jump off the building. you hateful thing, what are you going to be? What are you going to do? Tell the truth. Let the Holy Spirit, and by the way, I know I was, maybe you were, maybe you weren't, but I was the most vicious in my attacks of God and Christians the closer I got to trusting Christ. I mean, everything in me was fighting it. I didn't want to do that. It was the most ridiculous way that people were acting, and I didn't want. And so I fought against it, but somebody, that kept telling me the good news. And then I believed. Either we come to God on our terms or we come to Him on His terms. Those who belong to Jesus are called to bear fruit, just like the new servants were expected to bear fruit in Jesus' allegory. But remember, it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit living in us. Even as we believe in Jesus and we're called to produce fruit, we must remember that it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit and it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Don't trade one form of law for another. Don't make the mistake of living your life ritually rather than relationally. It's what put the Jewish leaders in such hot water to begin with. And they hated being called out by Jesus, especially in front of all the people. And this allegory, and, and, and look, people make distinctions. This is better called an allegory than a parable because it's making several points where a parable typically will make one primary point. But this allegory reminds us that we have a patient and gracious God. It also reminds us that we are servants in the, in the vineyard, we're not the Lord of the vineyard. Listen, when we, we're calling for nominations for elders and deacons. Um, not so that these guys can, can run the church, but so that we can, as servants, lead the church. And we lead by following Jesus, who is the head of the church. We ought to be looked for servant leaders when you're filling out. And by the way... David was saying, you know, the difference is, and it's true biblically. The only difference between elder and deacon is the ability to teach. But when you look at, it's interesting. You look in you know, about just about all the deacons uh, went to preaching as soon as they, you know, got their their place. And Stephen, first martyr, was it was a deacon. That's no prophecy on our own, Stephen, who is a deacon, but <clears throat> spelled differently. Okay, so you don't have to worry. But, um. These guys, the deacons in our church, every one of them is qualified to be an elder. It's a matter of gifting. Where has God gifted you or where is he using you right now? So pray much about this. In two or three weeks or so, we're not in a hurry in this process. We will present a slate of elders and deacons, elder, deacon, Elder, no deacon, deacon, no elder you know we 'll do that in a, in a matter of three two, three, four weeks and and then you 'll have two weeks to pray about that before you affirm the decision or otherwise we certainly want to be in step with you, and that is being in step with the Holy Spirit. We actually are asking you to affirm the fact that we are following the Lord in this so <clears throat> This allegory reminds us that we are servants, not the Lord of the vineyard. It also tells us that the way one responds to the Son will determine his or her fate. you have got a choice to make. Do you abandon all of your hope of impressing God and fall on Jesus, or do you hang on to? Nobody's going to tell me that. I believe a person's got to do this, this, and this in order to be saved, and that's what I'm... Trying to do. When somebody says, I'm just trying to get to heaven. Let you know they not really. They don't understand the gospel. That our only hope is in Jesus, but he is a sure hope. When we trust in him. It's a done deal. If we do, we will bring forth fruit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit. For many in our day, God can seem like the absent landlord and and foolishly think uh, that they can behave in any way they want and there are going to be no consequences. But we owe everything to the Lord of the vineyard. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, Psalm 2 tells us. Well, the leaders had no such interest in kissing Jesus and and linking arms with Him or falling in behind them, falling on their face and worshiping Him. They joined forces, in fact, to lay traps for Jesus. It, It would be difficult for us to understand that level of animosity that these various groups in Israel had for one another. You think Republicans and Democrats and Libertarians don't like each other much? Oh, my goodness. These guys hated each other. But you know what? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so they joined together and said, we're going we're to bring this guy down. Time after time they asked Jesus questions in an attempt to get him to say something that would cause him to be arrested by the Romans or to lose support, popular support amongst the people. They did that over and over. Time after time they failed. In this next section, the past section, it was chief priests and elders and scribes now it's the Pharisees and the Herodians, and there's some overlap in these groups. The Pharisees and Herodians came together to have a go at Jesus. Pharisees were very religious. Herodians were very politically minded. They cared a great deal about economics. But these groups worked together, and they asked Jesus a question about taxes. This is a, actually a brilliant question for Jesus. They were convinced that it was a brilliant question. Teacher, we know that you always tell the truth. You don't care about what others think of you. You don't worry what your answer. Just say what you think because you don't care what anybody thinks. Go ahead. You, you make these bold statements. What do you have to say about this? You don't show partiality. It's interesting, isn't it, that even as they commended Jesus for his sincerity, they were phony as you could possibly be they were wrong though about Jesus Jesus does show partiality and he does not give straight answers to those who are not really interested in the truth so Jesus should we pay taxes to Caesar see the leaders made the mistake of assuming that Jesus was radical that he was a revolutionary that he was calling for the overthrow of Rome. I'm the king, everybody needs to worship me. And if he said, yes, pay your taxes, if he said no, then then of course the Herodians, especially who had connections, real close connections with the Romans, would have him arrested. But if he said, yes, pay your taxes, then those who were zealots in, in Jesus' crowd of followers would turn away. He would lose support among those who wanted the overthrow of Roman rule. And listen, again, this feels like it's crazy, but remember, less than 200 years earlier, uh, the Jews had been able to rebel against the the, the Greek oppressors and throw them out. So it's not that far-fetched that they might do this again. And everybody listening to Jesus knew somebody who had had property seized or had been actually sold into slavery. The Romans, you know, this Pax Romana that we speak so highly of today didn't feel so good if you were under the rule of Rome in that day. So, what are you going to do? First of all, Jesus' answer exposed their hypocrisy in a flash. He just think about it. He asked for a coin, a coin that he didn't possess. Now, what's on that coin? Whose image is on that coin? Caesar, but there's a lot more than just Caesar's image on that coin. There's an inscription underneath that says, Tiberius Caesar, August, son of the divine Augustus. Divine Augustus, claiming divinity for Caesar. On the reverse side was a picture of a woman who was either a pagan priestess or Livia, the wife of Augustus, mother of Tiberius. See how I worked that mother of Tiberius on Mother's Day? See how I work that in? <clears throat> they had to dig through their purses. Jesus says, Give me a coin, and it's like, a coin. And they're, they're trying to figure it out, but someone produces a coin. And in doing so, what does it show? They had no qualms about doing business with Caesar and about bringing a coin that was, for all practical purposes, a portable idol right into the house of God. They're trying to trap Jesus and he turns it around and, and, and they're devastated in a moment. They already paid tribute to Caesar by carrying the coin. So, Jesus said, in effect, let Caesar have his idols and give to God what belongs to him. What does belong to him? Again, next Sunday, you'll hear the answer. When Jesus says to pay what is owed to Caesar, he's not saying that Caesar is only in charge of government and God is only in charge of religion. Um." Nor is he saying that the church will become all-powerful over the political realm as well as the spiritual realm. There are several conclusions that we can draw from this text. First, Jesus rejects violence as a way of elevating the kingdom. The leaders mistook Jesus for just another revolutionary. This misnomer, in fact, has been used by a lot of people to justify the overthrow, the violent overthrow of a government that they consider to be unjust, and they do it in the name of Jesus. Yet Jesus said, pay what is owed to Rome, an oppressive ruler, an oppressive ruler that would tear down the city and this magnificent temple and its complex within 40 years of this debate that was going on. And they would do so, the Romans would do so in response to a Jewish rebellion. The second conclusion we draw from Jesus' teaching is this. Jesus doesn't encourage his followers to completely drop out of society. That's what a lot of people would like to do, isn't it? Drop out of society. I don't pay any taxes. I don't expect anything from you. I'm just going to live on my own. and, And you leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. We'll all get along well, all right? Um, But that's not what Jesus says. He doesn't tell people to have nothing to do with government. Even as citizens of the earth or citizens of heaven, we're called to be the best citizens that we can be on earth. We're not free from civil law, which was established by God to promote order. And if you think our government is oppressive, please smell a big bag of coffee. Not compared to Rome, where it's nothing. Well, we're headed there. Don't disagree. Still, get two bags of coffee, all right? One for each nostril. Third, Jesus limits what one owes to the government. The image and inscription on the Roman coins implied that Caesar was God. Jesus rejects the notion out of hand, as would the Pharisees. But Jesus also exposes the Pharisees' hypocrisy by proving that they do business with Caesar with the coin that came from their own pockets. If we make use of the state's money, we travel the state's highways. We are bound to pay taxes. I am as conservative or more conservative politically than you are, and economically. But don't get too distracted by this. I don't know that the government government needs. I agree, government needs to get off our backs. I, I'm, a, I'm all about you know free market system. I I, I I am pay as little taxes as possible. But we owe something to Caesar, whether we like Caesar or not. We may owe the government money, but we owe love and worship only to our Creator and Redeemer. In fact, government derives its authority from God. Otherwise, we would only owe Caesar. Our our allegiance to God, and I'm so thankful that I can say this publicly, and I may not. Don't misunderstand saying what I said the other day. I think we're in trouble as a society. I know that I may not be able to say this publicly for long without Serious consequences. But God deserves our highest allegiance. Peter applies Jesus' words in Acts five twenty nine when he says, we must obey God rather than men. And it's, and it's this little response, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and render to God what belongs to God. Jesus says so very much. You cannot give to Caesar what belongs to God, which is worship. You can't, which is why when the when when the um, Romans said you're so narrow, we don't care if you say Jesus is Lord. Just say Caesar is Lord as well. They said no, we can't. We we owe that only to God. Last, this passage warns against civil religion. Look, if if you were in the church history class this past fall, you realize what a negative impact the elevation of, of Christianity to state religion had on the church when Constantine became emperor of the Holy Roman, or that wasn't Holy Roman Empire at the time. And see what a, what a tricky thing it is. Holy Roman Empire—that's an oxymoron. The only empire that's holy is the one where Jesus is is on on the scene and in charge of everything and everybody. Then it will be a holy state, a holy empire. Early in the 4th century when Constantine <clears throat> said we're going to treat Christians with toleration and then he said, in fact, we're going to elevate Christianity to the chief religion and then tolerance went out the window. I I I cannot bear almost the society's take on tolerance today, I say I can't bear it. That's really not even the best way to say it because I don't want to project a particular spirit or attitude, but it's it, its an, an unjust expectation of tolerance that everyone is tolerated except for the Christian belief, but you know what? God's bigger than that, and people didn't go around saying, hey, let me be heard. They just quietly spread the gospel in the first century, and it overtook the Roman Empire. But even so, it's so inconsistent, so hypocritical, this view of tolerance. But you know what happens when the church is in charge? We don't tolerate anybody. Because there are a lot of people that aren't Christians who are in the church. And Adam is still all over us, and we think this is for the best. And so we don't. Separation of church and state is brilliant and beautiful. It's it's never gonna work like we want it to. But Jesus said that's the best way for it to work. Render to Caesar what's his, render to God. What's his? I know that many of you wish we were more politically active in our church. I know that. Hey, Pastor, can you t- talk about this? Hey, elders, we want to, you know, march on Raleigh or Washington or whatever. Look, that's not our mission. It's never been the church's mission. We make it our mission, we confuse Caesar and God. No, I'm just trying. Keep it like it is. Give to Caesar what's owed to him, gift to God what is his. Now, for those of you that have remained and not walked out, I would like to just finish up with this last little section, even though we're past time. So so far in our text, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, Pharisees, and Herodians have come against Jesus. Now, it's the Sadducees' turn, even though they were represented in the chief priest. The Sadducees were the priestly party. And I I want to let you know, nobody liked the Pharisees. They were just mean people, nobody they didn't like each other even uh and 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 the only history we have of them comes from other people and they weren't kind in their description of the of the Sadducees. We tend to think of them as liberal because they rejected the notion of the resurrection. But they would have been considered quite conservative in their day. You know why? Because they said, let me tell you what Scripture is. It's not this whole whole Old Testament. They wouldn't have called it that anyway. But all that those prophets and Psalms know. Only what Moses wrote, the first five books of the Bible also known as the Pentateuch, also known as the book of Moses, also referred to as just Moses. Moses wrote. When the, when the leaders say, Moses wrote this, or Jesus said, Moses told you, he's referring to those first five books of the Bible. So they were considered very conservative, and they couldn't find the resurrection in the Pentateuch, and so they didn't believe in the resurrection. Um, and thus... No resurrection, they were sad, you see. That's how you remember the Sadducees. Pharisees were all about, all about the, you know, all of the Old Testament. Sadducees said, no, just these little bit. And being the clever souls that they were, they said, okay, Jesus, we have a question about the resurrection for you. You seem to talk about that a lot. In fact, Mark has already recorded three times where Jesus prophesied his death Crucifixion, actually, and resurrection. So they wanted to expose him for the fool that they thought he was. Mean people almost always think that everyone else is a fool, don't they? Mark Twain said, I never met a mean person that traveled far from home at all. That's another reason you ought to read, because you don't have to go anywhere and you can travel the whole world, you can travel back through history. Well, the Sadducees said, Here's a, here we go, Jesus. Now, they're basing this argument on the Leveret Law. Found in De- Deuteronomy 25, an example is given in Genesis 38. An example is also given in the story of Ruth, but they wouldn't have acknowledged Ruth as being Scripture. Um, <clears throat> so, you notice that the Sadducees are quoting Moses. And they said, the law commanded that when a man died with no heirs, the brother of the deceased was to marry the widow and raise up children for her. That was a merciful law because if a woman had no sons and she was widowed, who was going to take care of her later on? Well, God put in his law that the next brother was to marry her, which would mean that the law commanded some men to have more than one wife. See, once again, this is a Mother's Day text after all, you know? Um, So here we go. They're saying, all right, the man died, so his brother married her. No children. And then another one. And all the way down to seven. Whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? Even though the question is absurd Once again, Jesus' response is brilliant, not that we should be surprised. Let's read it and then think about the structure of a response, and it won't take long, I promise you. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you were wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Over and over, he says to these people who are supposed to know the word, you don't know it. Sadducees would say, Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're just looking at the first five books. He said, okay, well, I'm going to answer you from the first five books. For when they rise from the dead, they they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. That's a little more Mormon than we would like, but he's making a point that life in heaven is not exactly like life on the earth. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is the God, not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now, here again, this is going to take just a moment for a, a little bit of instruction. Jesus is using a, a chiastic structure, a pattern in his teaching. If it had space on there, it would really look like this. A, B, C... C, B, A. It's almost, you can think of it like an arrow. You know, the the point is being made like this, and he's coming, and it's much more powerful than we get when we don't understand how he's doing it. Some of you have quick minds. I I know a person who is OCD and has to have every sentence end in an even syllable. Not, you know, not all the time, but sometimes either an even syllable, not an odd syllable. Has to be. I can't think that quickly. I'm not that good. But this chiastic structure of an argument on the spot, Jesus does it. Look, did you see this pattern over and over in Scripture? And it makes for powerful arguments. And the first two cha- it's kind of like a mirror. And the first two chapters of the Bible in Genesis and the last two chapters of the Bible in Revelation guess what? Chiastic structure. You think those guys got together and planned it out, Moses and John? You think John was smart enough to figure that out? No, he wasn't. He was one of the most simple writers of Scripture in all of the Bible. And yet, this incredible structure. So, Jesus says, you're wrong. You are in error, I had at first, because that's another translation. So, you are in wrong is not supposed to be, I was wrong when I put that out there. You are wrong. You don't know the Scriptures. You don't know the power of God. The power of God raises the dead. And then we're going to cite Scripture, Exodus 3, 15 to 16. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the living. You are quite wrong. I wish I could talk more about the structure that it's used, but there are a few conclusions from this important teaching. And again, we get to the application next week. I, I did though, I just want you to be on the lookout for this pattern in scripture. You read commentaries and they talk about a chiastic, a chiasm or a chiastic structure in scripture. This is what they're referring to. And it and it's built in such a way that it packs quite a punch. From what Jesus said. It's clear that we're expected to know the Scriptures, which is why there's so much teaching in today's message. And we are to acknowledge and trust the power of God. As for what life will be like in the resurrection, we are told remarkably little. I mean, even though Jesus rebukes the Sadducees for their lack of knowledge about the afterlife, he doesn't really give us a whole lot of description about what life is going to be like there. But he does say with regard to family, heaven's not going to be like it is here. Isn't it interesting when people give their reports of brief times that they have sensed that they're in heaven? And I don't know. I I, I really can't respond to it. But it's interesting that it's always family. You know, we've, Family is the most precious thing to us on this earth. And so we think that surely family is going to be important in heaven. Well, unless you're Elizabeth Elliot and you've had three husbands. You know, I mean, it's not like there what it is here. And especially women. You know, I hear women all the time. "Oh, Oh, I just want to think that we're going to be, you know, eternal soulmates and this kind of thing, but where's the emphasis going? It's going on family. But you know what the emphasis is in Scripture? About the next life is Jesus. He's the center and the focus of our affections. I have no idea how it's going to work. I know that relationships, the way that God designed Male and female relationships is a very important thing to us. And, and who knows if what happens in heaven. We don't know. I know that someday there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And there's a sense that life is going to be, you know, just perfect here on this earth. How it's going to work, I don't know. We're not told. I can tell you this, though. You're never going to say this. You're never going to say, man, it's really great here, but you know what? Uh, I just wish it were like it was on earth. You're never, ever going to say that. Jesus is going to be the central theme. Eventually, we're going to fall down on our face and worship this one who is the cornerstone. In the restored creation. And we can know this, Jesus will be everyone's king. He's the theme of Mark 12. He's the theme of all Scripture. It pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness of the Godhead should dwell. Let's pray. Jesus, we are unworthy to stand in Your presence. We are Unworthy to be called a joint heir with you in all the blessings of God. We are unworthy, Father, to be able to come into your presence. It's all because Jesus died in our place. (laughs) These leaders wanted to put Jesus in his place which is off to the side and actually out of the way completely. But many of us want to put Jesus in a compartment in our lives. Be king over us. Rule over us. Make us like you, Jesus, even though we know that the way of the king is the way of the cross. And as we follow you, we are being led to the cross. We're so grateful, Jesus, that you died that we might have life. We love you. We trust you. And we pledge yet again our allegiance to you, and only that is done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you please stand together?
1: Let's hear this benediction from Jude, the brother of Jesus. I got that right, right? Yeah. Sorry. Half brother of Jesus. Yes. In encouraging the early Christians who were called according to the word of Christ. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen.